Hello, my name is Sadie Drinkwood Herman, and I am here with my colleagues Aidan Donovan and Madison Peake. Welcome to our podcast, Europe in the World, where we explore issues related to development, humanitarianism, and crisis management within the EU. This podcast is under the direction of Dr. Kaya Shilda, Associate Professor of International Relations at BU's Party School of Global Studies, and Jean-Manet Chair in European Security and Defense from 2022 to 2024. This episode's guest is Federico Fabrini, who is very knowledgeable regarding EU institutions and has written on the protection of human rights within the EU. We discussed in depth the topic of human rights and humanitarian crises in the EU. All right, so the first question, how do the universal human rights of the EU and the Lisbon treaties, which are foundational documents by which member states of the European Union abide, characterize Brexit in terms of the rejection of migration and the return to perceived sovereignty in Britain? Was it framed as an infringing on the UK's right to decide who enters the country? Thank you for your question. Uh, the protection of fundamental right in the framework of the European Union uh, is highly important. The whole project of European integration uh, began after two world wars and one of the most dramatic events in human history, which is the Holocaust. So as a matter of fact, uh, the protection of fundamental rights from day one was one of the key concerns of the statement who built the uh, uh, European communities, what would then be the uh, European Union. Over time, fundamental rights have grown in importance in the framework of the EU thanks to the action of the European Court of Justice. And most recently, a number of treaty changes have given additional visibility to the protection of fundamental rights in the European context. In particular, since 2000, the EU now has a Charter of Fundamental Rights, uh, which has the status of a constitutional document for the European Union, which enshrines a long catalog of rights and liberties for individuals and uh, societies uh, at large. So the background is one where the European Union has actually a very comprehensive, very sophisticated set of documents for the protection of individual liberties and civil rights more uh, more generally. But of course, uh, during the last two decades, those same rights which are enshrined in the constitutional documents of the European Union have increasingly become contested and being challenged at the national level as well as increasingly on a global scale as well. Uh, and Brexit that you mentioned is certainly one good example uh, of that. The United Kingdom had a complex and difficult history of relationship with the European Union. Uh, and over time, the question of rights protection became one of the more contentious one in the relationship between uh, the parties. The UK complained that European law provided too much protection for people moving across border and seeking welfare benefits from one member state to another. The UK complained that European human rights law restricted national sovereignty and the ability to take decisions on issues such as voting rights for prisoners, just to make an example. And that all fed into the narrative that then resulted into the Brexit referendum. Uh, but uh, at the same time, it's, it's important to acknowledge that Brexit is not the only example of that backlash against right, against uh, uh, global governance, against uh, European integration. You see it in other countries as well, like Hungary and Poland, which are increasingly challenging core values, not only the protection of, of fundamental rights, but also separation of power, the rule of law, and so on. Thank you. Cool. Yeah, and then from more of a development perspective, where do you see EU law emerging from? Like citizens, member states, 
EU enforcement, etc., any other people. <laughs> So the creation of EU law is a complex process. Yeah. Uh, EU law uh, relies first and foremost on treaties, which are concluded right. by the member states as sovereign actors of international law. But those treaties, on the one hand, create then competences for the institutions of the European Union to produce additional norms, directives, regulations, and decisions. And on the other hand, those treaties are then interpreted, particularly by the European Court of Justice, um, which has been able over time to read more things into the founding text of the EU. So the legal system of the European Union is a dynamic construct which has been uh, evolving over time and adjusting to new challenges uh, as things occurred. Now, in itself, this is nothing new. The US Constitution, just to pick an easy comparative example, uh, is yet another document that it's very old, has been changed formally only a few times, and yet has changed its meaning over time through the action of both judicial institutions and, and the political branches uh, of government. So that's one of the beauty of the law that is a flexible tool that can also be interpreted and reinterpreted as needs require. Thank you for that answer. Our next question for you is, what do you think of the role of the European Court of Justice as a supranational institution? Um, this is a great question. The European Court of Justice has been arguably one of the mo most influential institutions in the process of European integration. Uh, it's a very innovative institution. Uh, de facto, it's the first ever supranational court ever created by treaty. That's one of the legacy of the post-World War II foundation of the process of European integration. But over the years, the court has come to play clearly the role of an engine for integration. In the 1960s, the European Court of Justice came up with two highly innovative and transformational doctrines of European law. The first doctrine is called the principle of direct effect and means that European law automatically produces legal consequences in the legal system of the member state. And the second doctrine is the so-called principle of supremacy, which says that in case of conflict between national law and EU law, EU law will prevail. Now, those doctrines are typical of federal systems as opposed to international uh, organizations. And thanks to the action of the court, the EU legal system has really changed and become much more similar to a federal constitutional regime over time. And in years since, the court has continued to play a big role in further integration, including in the field of fundamental rights protection, as we were mentioning uh, earlier on. That clearly has come under criticism from some corners over the year. The Court of Justice has been accused of running a hidden integration agenda. But at the end of the day, if you look at the function of the court, the reason why the member states created it in the first place, it's clearly to be a guardian of the treaty and an independent authority that can review the law and compliance with the law by all member states. So no serious proposal has ever been put forward to, in fact, reduce the power of the court. And what we've seen over the years is that actually time a treaty was changed, the power of the court was expanded. So um, this next question is um, uh, further diving into Brexit again. Um, 
How do you perceive the migration crisis of 2015, characterizing Brexit and the rhetoric that was peddled throughout the country? How much of this rhetoric was weaponized, and what is the reality of migration of, uh, for Britain to of, of migration for Brit to Britain via the EU? Um, there are a number of reasons that can explain the decision of the United Kingdom to uh, leave the European Union, and certainly a number of factors that have influenced that choice uh, in uh, 2016. Uh, and no doubt migration is one of them. So as you rightly point out, concern for uh, the inability, concerns about, concerns about the inability of the EU to manage large influx of people escaping war-torn region, Northern Africa or the Middle East, have played a factor in uh, increasing xenophobic right-wing anti-European sentiments in segments of the European population. And clearly, some political entrepreneurs like Nigel Farage uh, and his own uh, political movement capitalized on concerns around that. And yet, I think that ironically, migration was not ultimately the driving force behind the decision of the UK uh, to leave. It was one factor, but in my opinion, not the most influential one. Other elements played uh, a bigger role in that respect, including the fact that over the years, the UK had developed an awkward relationship with the European Union and de facto was already half out while being half in. So if you think about issues like the euro, the single currency of the European Union, actually the UK never adopted it. So the UK always maintained sovereignty over its currency. Or think about the Schengen free movement zone that allows people across member states to cross borders without, without having to go through any kind of border control. Once again, the UK was not part of it. It had an opt-out from the free movement zone. So on the most symbolic and consequential areas of European policymaking, the UK was by far the most isolated uh, member state. It was an outlier by not participating in areas of deep integration like the single currency. And, and, and free movement. And that created in Britain a, a feeling of insulation that I think was crucial in leading towards the Brexit vote. Right. Um, and continue with crises talk, I think. Like, what types of crises are within the EU jurisdiction and then what aren't? And then can you give an example of a humanitarian crisis the EU could not respond to? It has been said by many academics over the last uh, decade that the European Union has been moving from one crisis to another non-stop. Uh, if you just think of what happened uh, since the explosion of the global financial crisis in 2008-2010, uh, Europe has to had to weather the euro crisis and the migration crisis. As we mentioned previously, Europe is going through a rule of law crisis. It now had to face a global pandemic. And last but not least, more recently, the war in Ukraine, uh, which uh, has posed yet again an existential challenge for the functioning of the EU. Uh, some of these crises are endogenous. They emerge from within the European Union and they have to do with internal EU features. Brexit is perhaps a good example of that. Some of these crises obviously is endogenous. They come from outside the European Union and they affect the EU from the external uh, perspective. Obviously the migration crisis, the global pandemic and now the war 
are a fair example uh, of that process. Regardless of these differences, however, uh, what we have seen over the last decade uh, is on the one hand the weaknesses of the current EU constitutional system, which has hampered often the ability of the EU to face crisis. But on the other hand, to be fair, what we've also witnessed in the last decade is a remarkable ability of the EU to adjust and adapt and address sudden crises which were not previously uh, expected. Of course, in an ever more integrated global world, global economy, uh, it's very difficult for uh, a polity like the European Union to insulate itself from what happens elsewhere. And so, for example, of course, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which is clearly legal under international law, has now created external spillover into the European Union. So the key question and the key need for the EU is to have the internal capacity to deal with unexpected events. And that's a, 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 it's a complicated process. It's connected to dynamics of state building. And of course, it is mostly driven, as we just said, by external crisis. So there is a, a challenge that comes from crisis, but there is also an opportunity for the EU to use this crisis to improve itself and become a more perfect union. Right. And you mentioned um, Russia as an outside crisis, but are there any other humanitarian crises outside of the EU that are easier or harder to respond to? And then does it vary by region? So like the Middle East, South America or Africa? If you look at our world map today, it's full of areas of conflict, it's full of areas of crisis. Uh, we haven't mentioned so far perhaps the biggest of all crises that the world is facing today, which is the climate crisis right. yeah. and the potential destruction of our planet uh, due to uh, climate change. Uh, in all of those areas, it would be highly important for the EU to be an active player, uh, to influence global solution, to participate at the table where decisions are being made. In some circumstances, the EU has been up to the task. In others, it hasn't because of its internal weaknesses. And that's where the uh, relationship between internal dynamics and external dynamics becomes crucial uh, in our assessment of the European Union. But there's no doubt that if the EU wants to have a voice on the world stage moving forward, it will have to strengthen its internal decision-making system. Uh, uh, it will have to beef up its financial resources and, and capacity, and ultimately it will have to develop a more coherent strategy vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world. Right. That's great. Thank you so much for that answer. Thank you. Um, that concludes our questions and our podcast. And we would like to thank you for your time and your dedication to sharing your knowledge with us. So thank you. My pleasure. Yeah.